Rebecca Stokes and welcome to Strategy Bytes. I am the co-founder of Oak Tree Talent Group, a specialist strategy and transformation recruitment agency. Strategy Bytes is a compilation of career stories and insights from the market's most experienced executives. Many have gained their strategy toolkit from management consulting. In each episode, we ask the best of the industry's talent to share the highs and lows of their careers and the best bits of advice they've ever been given. They will give us a glimpse of what their day-to-day lives look like now, warts and all. Our aim is to give inspiration to the ambitious strategists out there and give them an understanding of what is possible. In each episode, we will ask guests for a read, watch or listen to recommendation and a quote or value that they live their lives by. Welcome to the Strategy Bytes podcast. For today's guest, we are very excited to be welcoming Ilan Israelstam, a co-founder and COO of BetaShares, a leading manager of ETFs in Australia. Ilan is a natural-born entrepreneur, and after spending five and a half years with BCG both in Sydney and New York, he has set up businesses both here in Australia and in China. So welcome, Ilan, to the Strategy Bytes podcast. Thank you for joining me today. So we're very excited to have you on the pod. Um, We've not had anyone from the ETF world on yet. So hopefully this is going to be a very interesting conversation. Looking forward to it. And thank you so much for having me on here. Um, So you have quite a diverse journey so far, which we'll delve into bits of later. Um, But if you can start by just giving me a bit of an overview of your background, that would be amazing. Sure. So like many Aussies, uh, I was a migrant. I'm a migrant. Uh, Moved here at the very beginning of high school after growing up in South Africa. We did a couple of moves before eventually settling down uh, here in Oz in Sydney. But from a young age, I have always had an entrepreneurial interest and pursuit. I remember back to some early days with my brother and I in South Africa, creating a, a small mini golf course in the backyard, charging neighborhood uh, kids to come and play. I think it was 10 cents, 20 cents. Uh, it has always been something about building something even back on that day. And I think that that passion, the flair, an interest for entrepreneurialism comes from from my background as an immigrant. I mean, I, like many immigrants, are very aware of what my parents gave up to make the move uh, from South Africa to Australia, you know, to, to give us a better future. And, and I think it definitely gives one a passion to build something and a level of rebelliousness that you need to become an entrepreneur, you know, to be able to actually sort of break down norms and, and, and change convention. Anyway, back to it. After, uh, University here in, in Sydney, I joined BCG, uh, Boston Consulting Group, which I know you work a lot uh, with alumni on. I uh, spent about five and a half years there, Sydney and New York offices, spending a lot of my time in financial services practice and private equity. Uh, great training ground, which as we'll discuss later, I do really view as a, an education and an extension of my education really more broadly. But after five and a half years, I did get the entrepreneurial itch again, and I decided to go out and, and, and start a business. So long story short, I reconnected with some friends from university, and we ultimately decided to go ahead and launch BetaShares, uh, which, as you said, is now um, a fund manager, one of Australia's leading fund managers, actually, uh, specializing in exchange-traded funds or ETFs. That's a potted history of myself. Very two-minute overview. Thank you. <laughs> um, look, the reason I was really keen to get you on the podcast is that your story is such an interesting one. And many of the consultants that we deal with crave the ability to be a bit more entrepreneurial post-consulting, but some feel a bit institutionalized or a bit of risk adverse and um, you know, coming forward. 
So I was just really keen to get your take on the mindset behind um, becoming a successful entrepreneur, especially after sort of five and a half years in a top consulting firm. Um, so firstly, I have to ask, given you obviously were born with such an entrepreneurial flair, what made you decide to go down the path of management consulting, you know, obviously past post the putt-putt and um, all the other entrepreneurial bits you were doing around your neighborhood? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, and I often ask myself that same question because I think I always knew that I wanted to, 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 to do something on my own or with partners. When I finished university, though, I suppose I didn't quite know what I was going to do. And I, I did probably feel, even though I did a five-year course, that I needed a longer time to educate myself. And I, I think I found management consulting to be a place that really gives you confidence, first of all, because you get exposed to such a wide range of, uh, first of all, industries and people and, and disciplines, but also a vocabulary around business. I didn't really know that much about business as anybody does finishing university. So having that vocabulary that comes from working in a top tier firm like BCG, I think is, is another thing that you get. So it's the confidence to have that vocabulary to challenge yourself and also to work with some amazing people. It, it felt like a generalist program, which indeed it was, and that's why I did it. But to continue on with what you asked, sort of why did I leave? Well, that's just because I really didn't have a choice, honestly. I didn't have a choice. I, I loved consulting, but it got to the point where I just knew that I had to leave. And um, as much as I love BCG and remain extremely proud alumni, I got to the point where when I was pushing the button of, I think at that time we were level 28 of Chifley Tower, I was literally feeling sick to my stomach about going up and seeing that beautiful office, which is not the way you should feel. You should feel excited about it. But I was a bit of a hell have harbor views kind of feeling, not because in any shape or form of the working conditions, but because of my own personal desire to to do it. So, you know, it was a, it was a driving force each and every day to go out and do something on my own. And I think that's really what it comes down to. So it wasn't a hard decision at all to leave, I must admit, but I've got a really incredible memory of doing it and, and remain in close to a lot of people from the firm as well. But the work in BCG held your interest for a number of years. Obviously, it's five and a half years. You were in Sydney, New York, private equity, financial services. For a long time, though, it did hold your, hold your interest. Yeah, it did. I really enjoyed, first of all, both of those sectors. You know, there was a very big practice of financial services at the time, and I believe there still is. And the private equity was exciting as well, the sort of the very fast deal-making side of things. So I really did love it, and I loved the people. And I also, to be fair probably got a lease of life of another at least a year and a half by spending some time in New York. I went on transfer over there, which was a brilliant experience, both from a personal and professional point of view. If anything, that just gave me more confidence because now instead of working with people who've been to University of New South Wales and University of Sydney, you were working hand, hand in hand with people who've been to Harvard and Stanford and, and Wharton. And in the end, you know, you feel that the the background you've had in Australia is equally as strong as, if not stronger than some of those top tier universities. So if anything, it gave me even more confidence to sort of go out and do more. And yeah, and in the end, I, I loved it and I loved the sectors, but I didn't enjoy the ultimate lack of accountability that comes from that. I got a little bit over the slide decks as well. So that's probably was the, the reason to leave in. Yeah, I hear that a bit actually. <laughs> and was the work very, or was the environment, I should say, very different in New York to Sydney? I would say... And I am biased, but I would say it's actually reflected both in the results of people and the, you know, and, and, and what people will tell you if you go there. The quality of candidates that we get here in Australia is second to none. And the Australians that go over to New York really do very well. But the environment was pretty similar. I mean, New York's obviously much more of a city that never sleeps. So I would say there's a bit more of that urban 
scenario and the work is more diverse. They've got a broader set of clients just by definition. The actual day-to-day work was quite similar, but the personalities and in many respects, the globalness was significantly more in New York. You get a lot of Europeans and others sort of spending a lot of time there in particular. So what I'm hearing is there was no grand master plan when joining BCG, you sort of, but you always knew that one day you would leave and do your own thing. Yeah, the grand master plan was to get a confidence, get the vocabulary, meet some amazing people, extend my education, but ultimately leave. And I just didn't know what I would do. Mm. And of course, at BCG, you would have worked alongside the likes of Brad Banducci, Kelly Bear Rosmarin, um, who obviously took the corporate path, becoming CEO of like Woolies and Optus. I would suggest back in that time, that was more traditional, follow, you know, following the corporate path. How did you know that that would not suit you? It comes back to the background that I had, as I mentioned before, and just wanting to be in control of one's own destiny, a desire to challenge myself beyond kind of a corporate hierarchy. And, and I do think, again, I just have to come back to that immigrant status, just knowing that uh, there's a lot to do. And uh, as much as I appreciate the amazing stuff you can do inside corporate, I just felt that I could make a bigger difference outside of it. Mm. Um, did, you, did you get much pushback from your cohort or mentors or friends and family around doing your own thing? Honestly, not. Honestly, not. I wish I could say it was one of those things where I had this really great, well-paying job and I, I decided to, to sort of push back against other people. But I'll, I'll be honest, it wasn't like that. There was nothing but support. And uh, yeah, it was an easy decision. And of course, I mean, you know, you talk about Brad and Kelly, but in the end, there's uh, guys like Bruce Buchanan uh, and John Ho and others who have gone on to do their own thing as well and, and forge their own entrepreneurial path. So there's two sides of the coin there as well. Absolutely. And of course, you obviously left and you decided you're going to do your own thing. And it's one thing to start a business on Australian soil where you know. It's another to go to China and start a business. Talk, talk to me about that time and your thought process about China. Yeah, I think once I decided to leave, it was just because I, ha- I had enough of that environment and spending time in consulting. So I didn't actually know what I was going to do. But as I mentioned before, with consulting, you do get a really interesting set of skills, one of which is the ability to sort of really think through opportunities well and in a structured way. So I actually ended up taking a bit of a BCG process to think about what to do. I thought about all the opportunities there were in the world. And didn't stop with Australia. I essentially drew up what is really an opportunity matrix. And China stood out to me, A, because I was fascinated with the culture. But in 2006, you know, which is when I started doing this, it wasn't a fledgling nation, of course, in any way, but it had a huge amount of growth still to go. And I was fascinated by the culture. And I decided to go there and again, really challenge myself in the ultimate way and uh, did end up going to China. I had made some connections prior to leaving, but ultimately went there alone uh, with nothing more than some ideas. But when I was there, I actually applied the same framework again to decide what to do. So I I guess I decided that China was a region that's worth giving a shot to, just given the growth potential. But I'd used a similar framework to decide what to do there, given my background and experiences. And I actually came up, funnily enough, with media as a really interesting space. Even though I had no media background, it is when economies are growing fast, media can be an incredibly interesting opportunity to be involved in because as you know media is part of consumerism consumerism is one of the early things that that grow very fast in an emerging economy like china so i focused on media and then again thought about which media could be interesting to get involved in and came out with outdoor media it was one of the few areas of media that weren't controlled entirely by the central government and had some sort of a private sector scenario too and we ended up working through a process where we got the rights to 
build a business in university and secondary educational institutions to put up billboards, digital billboards in universities, which are big, which are ultimately like little towns of their own. So quite an interesting opportunity. And I really went into the deep end. I moved to China. I had very little knowledge of the the language of Mandarin. So I sort of taught myself the language and set up a business in advertising space. And we ended up raising some capital there and ended up with about 45 or 50 Chinese speaking staff and, and then myself. So that was the move to China. Quite an interesting experience. Yeah, amazing. How do you view that time? Do you look back on it fondly or is it hard work? Yeah, I look back on it incredibly fondly from a growth perspective. It was very hard work, culturally just incredible and different to anything I've done before. Ultimately, though, quite a lonely experience because I had to hire 40 staff, all of which spoke Chinese. I was a lone Western person in my own organization. And in the end, the GFC hit. That was what led me to the ETF story. But I look on it very, very fondly and definitely huge growth experience, including the first real experience of raising capital as well. So Fascinating. But as you mentioned, you returned to Australia. So why did you go down the ETF path? In particular? Yeah. Well, first of all, the China story was good. So we got to a point where we had some tight, we had a few sites up in universities and we had to do another big capital raise to, to really roll this out into a much broader set of cities and universities. But that was at almost precisely the same time that the GFC really hit. And that really ended up stymieing the growth in China. And as I mentioned, with that said, it was limping along. It was a lonely experience. And I decided, okay, I still want to make sure that I do something that is entrepreneurial, but perhaps maybe this time come back to home, which everyone loves to come back to home to Sydney and do something with a series of partners. Mm. So, you know, I connected up with a couple of friends from University of New South Wales and we got together and we ended up sp- spending about 18 months deciding which path to go down. Again, actually quite a deliberate framework oriented approach. So not a serendipitous process quite structured thinking about what was happening. The one thing we knew was that financial services is where we wanted to be. We all had a really good background and uh, thinking through the changes that had taken place in the market, the GFC in particular was a very interesting change that had taken place. And that caused a lot of people to question the way they were investing and think about investing in different ways of the way they had before, thinking about maybe trying to reduce costs of investments and a, a big push towards passive investing and ETFs are typically passive. So with that and the growth that we could see in the US market for ETFs, which at the time we launched beta shares was probably 10 years ahead of us, it ended up being a good decision, an interesting decision to make and very useful to see US growth. And so, yeah, that's what happened. Mm. I think obviously, especially given the timing being just post GFC, some would say particularly risky, but you, you had a good formula there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's risky in a way, but in many regards, the GFC was the thing that caused us to, to really move into action. As I said, you know, when you build a business out of the ashes of the global financial crisis, there's a reason for it. And the reason for it is indeed the change that took place in investors' minds. And I'll just repeat again, people had invested in, at that point, you know, shares and in, in other people's funds. And they had expected those professional fund managers to protect them from something like the GFC. You know, it wasn't a one day event. It ended up being sort of going on over the course of close to a year. But lo and behold, when people looked at their investment results, they would have been just as well off by putting their money into an index, a passive index. And of course, ETFs are often passive. So in many regards, the GFC focus people's attention on on fees and on active management versus passive management. It made people also very cynical. You know, the GFC 
had a whole lot of acronyms to them like CDOs and CDS. And obviously Margot Robbie does a great job in the big short in the bubble bath there describing it. And uh, people became very, very cynical yeah. about investing. And they were looking for things and craving simplicity, transparency, low cost. And these are all the things that ETFs are known for. So that was number one. And number two, yeah, we saw the rise of ETFs, generally speaking, in, in, in the world, which is really useful. We had a blueprint, which is really a very valuable thing from a building perspective. Probably two other things that, that happened around about that time. Third was the growth of what's known as self-managed super fund investment. So these are people in Australia setting up their own super fund rather than using you know, a large super fund. So you can set it up yourself and put your own super into it. Those people are also typically the very same people who want control and low cost and transparency, which is exactly what ETFs are known for. So we, we took a view that self-managed super fund investors were going to be early adopters of ETFs, which indeed they were. And finally, the world of financial advisors was changing as well. So it didn't come into law until 2012, but there were a lot of murmurs at that time when we started BetaShares, which was really 2009, that financial advisors were going to be stopped being able to receive commissions from fund managers, which is actually what they were able to do until 2012. And commissions from fund managers is a weird concept because obviously they don't have an entirely uh, transparent view on what to, what to promote to their clients. And ETFs being quite low margin, we were never going to be able to pay those commissions. So knowing that was going to change meant that ETFs were going to be on a level playing field. And so those four things, plus of course our own sort of understanding of the industry and our networks were the things that caused us to ultimately go ahead and, 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 and go into the ETF space. And that was back in uh, 2009. And uh, yeah, it was good. Yeah. And obviously BetaShares is now hugely successful, but there must have been some bumps in the road. Um, what's the biggest challenges that you've had to, to face you know, and overcome both personally and professionally along your journey? Yeah. Professionally, it was the journey and the patience you need from ideating an idea, which was to, to launching the business. And that was about a year and a half. So 18 months of, of, of coming up with the idea and then actually going ahead and, and launching it. So yeah, it took us one and a half years to actually make that decision to go into ETFs, which is for many people quite a long time. And then from 2009 through to 2010, actually getting the first product out took another one and a half years. So it ended up being three years sort of in terms of ideation, launch, and then getting the first product out. So that was professionally difficult because not only financially difficult, but also just it really wears on patience. And also, if I'm thinking back to the beginning of the journey, it took about another three years before things actually started to turn out the way we hoped. So ETFs, when we started the beta shares business, were still very young and we had a lot of clients turning us away and, and putting down the phone and all those things. So it's, it's the patience that you need. I think professionally it was challenging, something very different from management consulting where you just get stuck right into it. Almost from day one, I remember sort of sitting in, in meetings with CEOs and all that stuff at BCG. So slower. That's professionally. Personally, I would say it's about letting go. I think as the business has become more complex and larger, I've really had to focus my attention on things where I can add the most value. And sometimes that means giving a whole lot of trust to others and really letting go, which for a control freak, like many management consultants are, is not easy at all. And I think I've still got a long way to go, but that's probably one of the more sort of personal things I've had to sort of get to grips with. And I would have, would have thought you'd have to be quite resilient at times. I mean, do you have um, a certain routine that keeps you fit and healthy? You know, obviously when things... <laughs> 
hit the fan and challenges come up? How do you deal with them? Yeah, I do. I am one of those people who does have a routine around being fit. First of all, I'm really lucky. I'm one of those people who don't need a lot of sleep. So I average about four or five hours a night. And so I do get to pack a whole lot of stuff into the day. It's probably not all that healthy, but I just have never been anything else but that. But I do exercise religiously every morning. I, I, I go to the gym and I do a, a pretty decent run once a week, which really does keep me grounded. Also, funnily enough, people ask, I, I don't listen to anything. I just hear the wind and my thoughts. I'm not putting a podcast in or, or sort of house music to keep me pumping along. I just actually remain clear with my thoughts. That's the thing that I do regularly. And also, obviously, when I am off and have the opportunity to have family time, I really do try to completely turn off and, and, and spend that time in a grounded way. So those are definitely the things that, that keep me balanced to the extent that there is about any ability to be balanced in this crazy world. And what about mindset? I mean, obviously you must have had a, a very strong gut feel that, you know, Beta Shares was going to be a huge success. Otherwise you wouldn't have spent so much time putting all your effort and energy into it. But in terms of mindset, what keeps you persistent? You know, obviously you said you had to take a lot of patience. What, kept, what mindset did you have to have to make sure you got up every day to do that? Yeah, I think the mindset, you know, in the end, there was a lot of thinking that went into the business as you had heard. It wasn't an overnight success. And ultimately we did back ourselves. You do have to ultimately back yourself. So like a quiet confidence really, but one that retains humility throughout the way. So we really feel that in this industry, which is all about trust and people's money, it's a marathon, not a sprint. We had to keep things going for a reasonable length of time. This is a little bit different to a technology business, which in many cases, you know, they, they can move, really grow extraordinarily fast. And I'm sure you've had some guests in that space. In the world of financial services, trust remains a big part and you can't earn trust without time. So being confident and backing yourself, but retaining humility and, and, and realizing you're in for the long haul is one part of it. Um, the other thing is that we did retain our confidence and, and even when things were slow, we actually doubled down when things took longer than we thought. So we were very sure about the future of the industry for all the reasons we described. And also the value that ETFs bring to investors in helping simplify their decisions and diversify their portfolios. So we did double down when things were tough. And I suppose that is a mindset as well. So instead of running for the hills when things are going tough, it's backing your ultimate judgment and doing things like building a big sales team, even when there was nothing to sell and then doubling down on end client marketing, because we knew that in the future, it was going to be a much younger investor that was going to start thinking about ETF. So that type of stuff. And do you think generally speaking, management consultants do make good entrepreneurs? Look, I really do. And I've obviously am biased, but I think if I think about what is needed what I take from that experience, it's structured problem-solving experience. So really being structured, being able to synthesize complex information quickly and cut to the chase quickly, sort of cut through the chase and, and get to the noise. I think strong quantitative skills that you do get from management consulting, definitely presenting and distilling information in, in writing and in slide form. It's actually really useful. The ability to work super hard. Those are the things that I took out of that experience. And just that generalist, just being a bit of a generalist rather than a specialist, I, I do look at others who've got other experiences such as investment banking, et cetera. And I think it is, it is an interesting, a very interesting skill set. Um, yeah. And obviously you, get, you gain some amazing experiences in, in management consultancy, no question. What do you think in terms of other experiences or other skills that one can cultivate? What do you think would round out the experience if one wants to start their own business and be an entrepreneur? 
Yeah, I think you you need to really back your opinions and decisions. I think consultants have got an ability to kind of a wonderful ability to remain on the fence quite a lot. I think being able to back yourself and taking that change to be able to back yourself is something that you need to work on. It doesn't come naturally when you're always putting forward a suggestion as a consultant and, and then waiting for a client to say yes or no. I think domain experience, domain expertise really helps. So if you are trying to do something in the world of financial services, you do need some, or in our case, finance. So you need some corporate finance skill set. You need to understand it. I've found contracts and negotiations, something to be something that isn't imparted on you as a management consultant. There's a lot of contracts and a need to be quite commercial about negotiations. You don't get into that. And then I'd probably call out people management. Now you do a lot of people management and management consulting, but these are HD distinction average type people, usually with MBAs and, and often a great deal of incredible experience and incredible fortitude. You have to get ready to manage people with different backgrounds and different skill sets. You don't get that experience in management consulting. So those are some things that come to my mind in terms of what you might need to sort of build out beyond what you get, but it is a great start. And uh, there's a reason why so many management consultants do a great job in starting their own businesses. I think definitely. And I think the ones that go into do well in startups understand that they have to turn their hand to anything quite quickly and be able to deal with quite ambiguous environments to start with, especially when they're really small. Um, and do anything that's needed to be done. Um, have you found that some consultants maybe don't understand that when they're coming into a startup? Yeah, I do. I think some are a little bit more sort of set in sort of a particular mindset or particular skill set. So I, I do. And I actually find with all the absolute, as I said, respect and, you know, sort of the, the gratitude I have for the amazing time I had at BCG, I find that by definition, it is fueled by people who are insecure overachievers. I actually remember that. That's kind of something you're looking for because I was part of the core recruiting team there at BCG. And you wouldn't say, but ultimately an insecure overachiever is what you're looking for. Somebody who's an incredible achiever, but never quite sure they're good enough. So I actually find having now hired several ex-management consultants, I'm, I'm keen to see them get out there more and improve their confidence, be willing to back what they're saying because they've got such amazing things to say. There is a certain level of the continual feedback loops and the continual grading and the things you get for management consulting are good, but it probably knocks you down a peg or two on confidence. Mm -hmm. And what we look for is not overconfidence by any means, but just an ability to really back your decisions, stand up for yourself. And that's something that I think that consultants definitely need to learn. So let's talk a little bit more about beta shares. For those that don't know that much about investing in ETFs, what in your mind are the benefits of ETFs? Yeah, so I'll do a quick 101. ETFs stand for Exchange Traded Fund, and that's the best way to describe them. So they're exchange traded. That means they are bought and sold like a share. And why that's useful is that you don't have to have any minimum investment. You can invest with $500, $1,000, $2,000. You can buy and sell them anytime you want, just like a share. Uh, you can use exactly the same way you buy a share. So you can use an online broker or a financial advisor, uh, and you know what the price is at any given time. And on the other hand, they're a fund, that's the F, exchange-traded fund. So what a fund means is that they are usually diversified, uh, they're, they're open-ended, so there's, there's a lot of liquidity. You can go in and out of them at any time and, and are pooled. So a good example might be using one of our products. So we've got a fund called NDQ, the NASDAQ 100 ETF. So let's say I'm an investor who decides that it's time to weigh into the global technology industry and I haven't decided exactly how to do it. I can go ahead and try buy the Apple shares or Facebook Meta or Google Alphabet, as it's called, 
or maybe Salesforce, but I don't quite know which one to pick and it's quite difficult picking stocks. So now I can go and buy the NASDAQ 100 ETF. I can put exactly the same amount of money I was planning on putting in. And there I get exposure to 100 stocks, which is the NASDAQ 100. And so in doing that, you're basically getting exposure to the whole index in a single trade. So that's what ETFs are. Benefits are diversification. They are sort of liquidity. You can buy and sell at any time. They're also transparent because they're passively managed typically. So we anybody can see at any time exactly what's in them. And they're often very cost-effective as well. So that's an example. So it's one of the fastest growing industries globally in the world of wealth management. There's about Actually, there's more than 10 trillion US dollars now in, in, in ETFs growing at around 20% a year. In Australia, we've got about 110, no, sorry, 130, I think it's $130 billion of assets. But when we started, there was only five. So the industry itself in Australia is growing at around uh, 30% a year and there's around about 300 products there. So, so yeah, those are some of the benefits and that's what ETF is all about. And is BetaShare still the only Australian founded ETF manager? Yes, we are the sole Australian founder. There is one other group that has an Australian background, um, although they'd be more European in focus. We are definitely the group that has been sort of focusing heavily on the Australian market. And uh, it's been a great journey. We've got 70 funds as of today. We launched a new one just today here in the, at the end of March. Uh, so we launched 70 funds and we're managing $23 billion in assets. And, and we've actually got the largest range now and, and actually the biggest team too in the market specializing in ETFs. And one of the... Um group of products I know you've cited previously that was becoming more popular was ethical investing products. Yeah. Still sort of taking off. Yeah. It really has surprised us a lot. We're managing about four and a half billion now in, in ethical and sustainable slash responsible products. It surprised us hugely on the upside, how popular it's been. And I think for us, the key Behind that is that we went ahead and brought out products that are really true to label. So they're not only ethical in name, they're actually ethical in nature. And when you look into the portfolio, you don't see any companies you would not expect to see in there. For example, the Australian product has got none of the big four banks because the big four banks are financiers of fossil fuels. We don't have mining companies in there. We've gotten rid of Facebook in the global fund. So it's actually been an incredibly surprising theme, but one that we're definitely double, doubling down on at BetaShares. And what are the most popular products? You mentioned the NASDAQ one. Yeah, the NASDAQ 100 is our biggest fund. It's a simple fund, really effective way to get exposure. Yes, the ethical suite. Um, so the NASDAQ one's called NDQ, the ethical suite. We've got a very large fund called EFI. It's a global ethical fund. We've got a fund that gives exposure to the Asian technology stocks. So think about Alibaba and Baidu and others. That's a popular fund. Uh, we've also got a fund which is actually the cheapest exposure you can get in the world to Australian shares. It's called A200 and that costs 0.07% a year. So that's basically $7 a year for every $10,000 you invest. So very small amount there and it's been popular. So we've got 70 funds and the range is, is growing all the time. And But those are some of the more popular ones we have. Goodness. And there's a very big question coming, I know, but in your opinion, what does the future of investing look like? Yeah, that is a big question <laughs> and I could answer it so many ways. <laughs> Look, I first will just say that the ETF story will continue to grow and grow. And this is just a simple fact. So in the US, one out of every two or half of every investors in the whole country is using ETFs and the trend is going up. We wouldn't be anything near that in Australia, not even near that. Uh, it might be one in 10 at the moment. So the future of investing, I think ETFs do play a big role. 
I do suspect that over time in Australia, virtually every single investor and, and all advisors will use ETFs as the core of their portfolio. I'm not just saying that because I'm in it. I just think it's the way that it is. And I think it's driven particularly by the younger generation. What we've worked out, which is not a huge insight, but nonetheless useful, is that people invest in what they know. And if you can invest simply and at low cost, that is a big part of the future. So you can meet a 25-year-old and they will be able to tell you that cybersecurity, for example, is a really interesting thing to invest in. They know what it is. They understand it. They read about hacks and you know in the newspaper and they're getting exposed to phishing scams and all these things. So battling against cybercrime with cybersecurity is a fairly obvious sort of thing to do. But how do they get exposure? Well, they're not going to really know which particular stocks to buy. So buying a cybersecurity ETF, for example, that gives you exposure to that industry is a perfect example of investing in what you know. And we do think that's going to be a big trend going forward. And it will be done simply. Future investing as that type of investing will be done more and more. The investing market will get younger and younger. It will be done simply at low or no cost. There'll be very little friction in terms of brokerage costs or anything like that. We're done with your mobile phone. And uh, we think that's the future of investing. But hopefully because the future of investing involves more diversified products rather than single stocks, it will be a safer way to invest ultimately and potentially more responsible way as well. And obviously this space, as you mentioned, is growing and the fintech space is highly competitive. There seems to be startups springing up all over the place. I mean, how do you keep ahead of the curve? You have to retain speed and nimbleness, no matter sort of how big we are. And in the end, we actually are still relatively lean as a business, particularly compared to our peers. So being sort of keeping that startup mentality around nimbleness, agility, is really, really important. The moment you get bogged down by too much bureaucracy is where somebody can come and disrupt you. We want to retain, remain the disruptor and we can do that due to our um, decision-making processes and our nimbleness. That's number one. I mean, into your world, hiring the very best people is just so important. And obviously there's a war there on talent, as you would know. And yeah, just being able to make the right hires has just been really important. And then finally, I think, as I mentioned before, being able to make those big decisions and adjust those decisions over time, which comes back to nimbleness, is pretty important too in terms of staying ahead of the curve and making sure that we're well across the trends and everything that's going on in the industry. And I would speak to consultants daily who are thinking about exiting consulting for various reasons. And many of them love the journey, but come to a point where they want to look outside. However, a lot of them don't understand, you know, where to go for advice or what they, what should they should be doing. Should they be starting in a bigger firm, going smaller? Can they go straight into a startup? Is that a bad move? So they get really confused about, you know, what they should do post-consulting. What advice would you give to consultants looking to make their first move out of consulting? I think there's never been a better time to make that move. There's just so much opportunity out there for that ex-consultant or that consulting skill set, the roundedness of strategic problem solving, quantitative skill set. So I think if you're thinking about making your first move, I think I will definitely say there's never been a better time. You'd be able to confirm that the demand's never been higher. So if you've got an appetite to really get your arms around more of a business, I think a good start might be a very well-funded startup or scale-up because then you get immediate profit and loss or PNL impact in a way that you wouldn't get elsewhere. I find that typically going into big corporate and which is another path is good, but they typically will spend some time in the strategy part of the big business first for quite some time, which is great, but not if you want an immediate PNL responsibility. So you can even specifically 
we mentioned Kelly and others. I mean, they spent time in, in the strategy team for a long period of time before sort of getting into that P&L. So that's a, it's a good path. So you move from the consulting team to the strategy team inside a corporate and then ultimately with P&L. But if you want to go straight to P&L responsibility, there's a way to do that. And I think well-funded startups are, are, are a very good place to think about and maybe tech firms as well. Yeah. Thinking back on all the advice you've been given, what do you think is the best piece of advice that you've ever been given? Yeah. I don't remember who gave me the advice, but somebody told me that you need to listen to your gut because nobody else will. And I, I think that's probably it. There's a time, there's a, there are times come where you feel a certain way, your gut's telling you something. And in my experience, those are where the best decisions are made rather than questioning that. So yeah, that would be it. Listen to your gut because nobody else will. 100%. Um, and I always ask my guests for a read, watch, listen to recommendations. So either a TED talk, book or podcast, apart from mine, of course, that they would cite as, as really resonated with them. Is there anything you can point to? Yeah. So on the book front, I really read business books. I, I just find to be, I'm consumed by business every single day. So I very, really read those. I'm actually a sucker for the classics. So if I was, you know, to think about the best book I've read or, or, or someone that really resonates with me, it's probably like Anna Karenina by Tolstoy. You know, it's just a complete study into the human condition, you know, traverses generations and years and just obviously incredibly written. If I was pushed on a business book, Jim Collins has got a book called Good to Great. It's about the way sort of companies scale, um, sort of make the change from being good companies to great companies. It's pretty cool. So that's probably what I would say. Watch, I mean, I, I'm assuming here we're talking about just anything that resonates, not necessarily to do with business. My all-time favorite show is The Wire. That's an edgy kind of Baltimore-based show about the, the drug trade and, and the, the urban world of Baltimore. Listen, uh, look, who can go past Revolver by The Beatles, an all-time classic album. Actually, Ben Harper's Fight for Your Mind. These are not necessarily things that are going to change people's business lives, but I think they might no. change, <laughs> change your life culturally, you know? Might make them happier. Yeah. Um, and thinking just about the audience that we're talking to, is there any final words of wisdom that you might want to be able, you know, might be able to share with them? I think a thirst for knowledge is something that I think is worth maintaining no matter how long you've been in business or what you're doing in your life. I think a thirst for knowledge, really trying to read about things beyond the day-to-day -day existence read about the world, general happenings, and just maintaining that sort of knowledge base, I think is really important. So yeah, maintaining that desire for knowledge, just think about that first job you had and try and maintain that thirst to just continue to learn more. It's probably what I would say. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see what you're learning next. <laughs> What's on the agenda? Uh, we'll have to watch well, and see. Yeah, we'll have to watch and see. I'm not sure. It's a work in progress. Well, look, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast and um, I'm sure we'll catch up soon. Thanks, Annika. Thanks. Take care. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Strategy Bites podcast, bringing strategy career advice to the market. But please do remember that first and foremost, Oaktree Talent is a specialist strategy and transformation recruitment agency. So if you're a top tier consultant or want to hire excellent strategy capability, please get in touch.